Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Again, I'm going to come back to um, a historical perspective, if I may. And I was um, speaking with one of my colleagues, um, Brittany Chapman, today via email about um, her work on Ruth May Fox, um, who was um, like Eliza R. Snow and like many others, expressed very, very forward-thinking feminist um, feminist ideals but at the same time was very deferential to the patriarchy, was very much um, about, you know, m- women don't lead men, men lead women. And in the home, I defer to my husband kind of thing. And it's this really interesting contradiction that you find throughout um, throughout Mormon women, Mormon women's activism, throughout. I mean, back to the 19th century, here you have these Mormon women leaders that are on the cutting edge of, Things like suffrage activism and progressive activism and and hygiene reform and and the uh, maternal and children and infant health and all these things that they're on the cutting edge of and peace activism as well mm-hmm. and participating in the the international peace movement and yet they're still very much um, deferential to the fact that men and women are separate, that we have different roles and that men are the leaders. And, (laughs) and so I've often tried to wrap my head around this contradiction within Mormonism is how you can have two side by side impulses on the one side, women who feel as though the actual restoration of the gospel, the organization of the relief society, all of these things was this wonderful opening of rights for women and the liberation of women, not only on an earthly scale, but a, um, an eternal scale. So you have that sense among a lot of these women activists, but at the same time, still retaining this very deferential, um, we, uh, we uphold the patriarchy. We support the patriarchy. We, you know, we support the priesthood and, and men are leaders over men and, and so I'm, I'm often fascinated by that dichotomy. And so you see that within these Mormon feminist strains today and, you know, the response to pants and general conference praying is this same tension that's being pulled out as if we, you know, we believe that we're equal, but at the same time we can't push it too much because that would challenge the nature of our hierarchical gender relationships. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. What I'm yeah. trying to say, and so we still, and so it begs the question. It's like what you were saying. People outside of Mormonism are scratching their heads, going, "What? What is going on? You guys are women wearing pants to, you know, <laughs> or women giving a prayer in a worship service." And many, many feminists have moved past this. They've moved past this, and we're still battling over this because our framework is so different. Our framework is an authoritarian church where you don't challenge the authority and you don't, 
you don't challenge the authority on your local level or your medium level or the highest levels of the church because that's just not the way we do things. And so I've had many of my feminist friends outside of the church say, how can you possibly be a Mormon woman, woman and a feminist? Those two things are completely, they're, they're not compatible. They just aren't compatible. And that's, you know, even that discussion even goes on among Mormon feminists today is how can you, how can we be in a patriarchal church and claim to be feminists? And some argue that we really aren't, that there's no way that, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. I think that it's exposing all these tensions that somehow we're going to have to kind of get a hold of this or because I feel like in some ways the lid is off the teapot and it's now and with social media, I mean, it might be pants and prayer today, but, you know, what are, <laughs> you know, down with scouting and what what's the next place that we're going to go or that that's going to cause these these seams to tear a little bit right. a little bit more and a little bit more so let's actually kind of talk about that a little bit so given that you're a historian what sort of trajectory do you see things taking right now i'm not asking <laughs> you to prophesy what's going to happen no, over cannot. the next but i i just wonder like you know what can we learn from these experiences and you know, what's what's sort of the healthiest way to move forward? Well, you know, I look to this new website that the church has put out that is meant to improve the dialogue and the discussion and the openness about how how we treat our gay members, mormonsandgays.org. And I see this as I, I see this as an example of what we're talking about of because of a kind of both grassroots movement as well as a lot of the very negative publicity that the church got over Proposition 8 is that there's now kind of a, a kind of a reorienting going on of let's back up and let's kind of start afresh and let's open the dialogue. And you see some of these um, groups going on uh, at BYU and where the gay students, the ones who are gay, are coming out and they're having these open discussions about it. And and I think, wow, there's an interesting model for where we're going. You know, right. maybe it's it's not where everybody wants us to be and maybe it's farther than what some members of the church are comfortable with. I'm, I'm almost certain that it's farther than what some members are comfortable with. And But that's an example of of exactly what we're talking about, and I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I think you know the the existence of that website. I don't think you can overemphasize the 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 influence of groups like Mormons for Marriage Equality and the various other forms of activism that have gone on in Mormonism over the past ten years Mm -hmm. about this issue. I don't think you can overemphasize how much that has influenced the shift that the church is going through on that specific issue. I think it is a useful model, for sure. Well, and when you even have uh, members of the Quorum of the Twelve, like an Elder Oaks or an Elder Christofferson, are actually saying very affirming things like, you know, backing away from the whole, you're not born this way, it's just a choice, and instead admitting the you know the essentialism of gay identity this kind of thing that you know to be honest micah 20 years ago you would never yeah, that is that. almost earth-shattering changes almost earth-shattering yeah. just to change that um just to change that um 
kind of it's a orientation. Huge, it's a huge yeah, paradigm it's, shift. It's huge. It, it's a huge paradigm shift. And so now it brings us back to gender. And here's, as a historian, here's what I'm, I'm just going to lay it all out is what I think is the, at the heart of the gendered issues in the church is that we have so many conflicting messages about the essentialism of women. And let me try to explain what I mean. I mean, I can go back to general authority statements, prophets, everybody back in the 19th century, and I can find you quotes that say, you know, your typical kind of 19th century Victorian rhetoric of women are all good and sweet and kind and nurturing and loving, but then you can also find plenty of quotes where women are women are inherently bad this goes even back to the middle ages is that this isn't this is inherent in christianity in general is you have these two kind of dichotomies women are either like eve they're evil they're seductresses they are less righteous they're not they're they're more prone to wavering this kind of thing or you have the pedestalizing that we've talked about before placing women on a pedestal and saying well all women as a whole are more righteous more loving more angelic more nurturing more spiritual so from the beginning we're struggling with these two contradictory messages about what is this group's essential gender identity fast forward to the 20th, 20th century and the 21st century and we still sometimes struggle with these conflicting messages. And we do it because we try to explain the separation of gender. You know, why do men have the priesthood and women don't? Well, because this is the way God ordained it. But also then we try to use these folkloric notions about the nature of women. And I can remember sitting in religion classes at BYU and having religion professors tell me, tell the class, well, the reason women don't have the priesthood is because our whole goal is to become like Christ, and women already have it built into them to become like Christ, and men need all the help they can get. Right. right. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard that narrative. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I heard it over and over <laughs> You <again>. betcha. <laughs> so here we're, here we're in the process right now. We're in the moment within the church of deconstructing outdated racist folklores. Like all blacks were unrighteous spirits in the preexistence, et cetera, blah, 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 all that nonsense. And now we've had to have the, the newsroom and the press, the, the press department come out and say, okay, we don't believe this stuff. And, and then we have now backing away from old folklores about, about gays and whether they're born that way or whether they're you know, all that stuff. And now I wonder, are we at a point where we can finally start to deconstruct all of these folklores about gender essentialism. All women are such and such fill in the blank. Right. All men are such and such fill in the blank. And that we use these gender essentialist ideas to justify or to reaffirm the way that we order society. And the way that we order our roles is very much dependent upon if we still believe that well, we have to have this separation of gender roles because women are naturally blah, 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 and men are naturally blah, blah, blah. Well, I have problems with this on lots of different levels. <laughs> right. And one is, first of all, all women are not angelic and nurturing and 
Many women are. Do we have it inherent in us to be nurturers? Yes, I think to a certain extent. Yes, I do. I mean, I, I feel like I'm a nurturer myself. I'm a mother. But I've also known women who are terrible nurturers. And I've known men who are excellent nurturers, including my own husband. And so it begs the question of how much do we stereotype an entire gender to the detriment of debasing the other gender to one extreme or the other? Or right. to one side or the other. And instead, shouldn't our discourse, shouldn't our narrative turn to, we are human beings, we are all prone to sin, we all need the Savior for his atoning grace. That should be our narrative, rather than using um, gender essentialism, which in all honesty falls upon, it, it falls apart on close examination, because you can always find exceptions, and then you can have discussions about how much people are socialized to gender roles versus how much they're really that way. This is this is one thing that somehow we're going to have to deal with because you can play the whole game of I'll find a general authority quote to match your general authority quote and how much has been said about women to women about their their roles based upon what their essential gender characteristics are. And of course, it's even ensconced in the proclamation of the family. It says gender is an essential characteristic. But it doesn't go on to say what the essential characteristics are. So if you were to take that to its next conclusion, what do we believe are the essential characteristics? So if men are less righteous than women, which is inherent in all of this discussion, and I have plenty of men that tell it, tell me that, they feel like, well, we're often told that men are less righteous than women. Then how do you justify giving all the leadership and all of the power to the the half of the population that's not righteous. Does that make sense? Right. <laughs> we need to just we need to get rid of these kinds of ways that we talk about gender entirely and I wonder if a lot of what these these different discussions are and these movements are is let's actually finally get this out on the table. Right. Do we believe in gender essentialism and and how much is this damaging whether or not we can progress to full inclusion for women and um, and and the way I look at it is that Christ himself exhibited both masculine and feminine characteristics. When you take the list of what's considered traditionally feminine, what's considered traditionally masculine, here you have a man that was meek and humble, but also sometimes aggressive, sometimes careful, um, intelligent, but also compassionate. And in a way, he kind of embodies this kind of both feminine and masculine characteristic uh, individual. Shouldn't all of us, men and women, be aspiring to achieve these characteristics that are both masculine characteristics as well as feminine characteristics? Once we can move past that and get to the fact that everyone is an individual, more of that, then we can start to move forward with some of these inner practical changes like you said and so i hope i don't know just does any of that make sense what yeah I'm trying to yeah of course absolutely i had two two thoughts while you were speaking there first of all i love that you brought up jesus christ because you know i think it's very clear from the uh, narrative we get from the gospels that one of the things that that jesus was deconstructing was the Jewish gender roles 
Oh, absolutely. Of, of his time, you know. There's no question that he was doing that. And I, so, I mean, you know, the way that he interacted with, with the women that were closest to him stood in defiance of all of the gender roles that were ex- that were popular um, in that in the, in the Middle East at that time. Right. And uh, and I think that's a very poignant lesson that we can that we can sort of take a lot from. Um, the second thing that came to my mind while you were talking about is, you know, I think, and this again goes back to one of the things we learned from Christ's ministry, is his biggest, biggest criticism to the Pharisees is summed up when he said that they strain a gnat and swallow a camel. And, mm-hmm. you know, the the Pharisees spent the Pharisees and Sadducees and just sort of the culture of the time spent so much time fretting over such meaningless things that they didn't really even focus on the things that were really important. And, and I hope people don't misinterpret. I'm not saying that the, the issue of gender inequality isn't important because it's very important, but I think that as, as part of, um, modern Mormon discourse, we spend so much time trying to reinforce this gender separation and this, um, these, these roles. And that spills into the discourses we have about modesty and pornography. And it just seems like so much of our time is spent talking about this stuff that we don't even spend any time talking about Mormonism, you know, or about the gospel. And so, you know, if, if, if for no other reason that we can move past all that stuff and actually focus on, focus on the camel you know what i mean right, right, right. Well, so I have, an example. I, I have a specific example and i'd like to be a little bit careful because it's something that um happened to me recently but we attended a meeting and i'm not going to say which meeting in which a leader um basically got up and for about half an hour talked about how men you should be leading your wives and saying in, and your families in calling family prayer and calling family home evening and calling scripture study and Women, we know that you're doing this far too much and that you men are shirking your duties. And men, you shouldn't be letting your wives call the family to family prayer. And literally it was half an hour of who should who should be doing family prayer and scripture study instead of instead of parents, you should be teaching your children the doctrines of the kingdom. And I came away feeling, as I often do when I come away from one of these messages, is I just kind of, my shoulders slump and I'm I'm upset for a couple of days and I just get so frustrated. I think, you know, you've, instead of, and maybe there's something I don't know. I mean, maybe it comes down to that leadership is frustrated because men aren't stepping up, because men aren't doing anything spiritual in their home because the women do it all and this kind of thing. So, you know, I mean, maybe it, it comes down to that there is a realistic and and valid problem throughout the church. But then I think of my own marriage and I think, you know, we're more concerned with, it almost makes it sound like women, you're not responsible for anything. Right. <laughs> Does that make sense? You're you're excused from any of the responsibility of this. And my husband and I often joke if we don't have family home evening, I say, "Well, I was going to have it, but you know, it's not really my job." <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, but, you know, if you need to step work, up. <laughs> yeah, and I, or I will say, I will say, "Well, I know I'm excused from it, and I'm not going to be held accountable for this in the next life if we don't have family home evening." <laughs> so that's on you, so, pal. <laughs> yeah, it's on you, pal. And um, you know, in most families, let's talk about how it actually 
actually happens. Whose turn is it to give to give the family prayer? Well, I think it's your turn. No, I, I gave it last time. I mean, I don't know if it's like that in your family, but oh, yeah. it's kind of like sometimes in ours and when you've got young children that are saying, no, it's my turn, it's my turn. And, and, and some of that whole, um, the rigor and the ritual of the hierarchy and whose job it should be kind of falls apart when you get into the day-to-day workings of the average Mormon family. And, and, and so I just, I just wonder this kind of separating out the men and calling them to step up to some women actually feels empowering. Maybe they enjoy, or maybe they benefit from that kind of pedestal. I'll call it a pedestal of, calling men to repentance, telling them they need to step up and that kind of thing. But to those that have more equal marriages, that doesn't come across as empowering. It comes across as condescending. And so it's interesting how different people are going to take a message like that, depending upon where they're coming from in their own individual experience and within their own marriage. But to me, as somebody who's sensitive to these kinds of issues, that kind of thing makes me bristle personally. But I have to be sensitive to those for whom it feels empowering. And right. it feels like, oh, yes, finally, somebody is calling my husband to repentance or whatever. Right. So not, I'm not sure if, if, if that's a valid way of looking at it or if I would be. Well, I think it's valid to, to look at it from all sides. Um, another way to look at it, and this is. Um, from a from a man's perspective is, you know, I know at s- certain times in my life as a husband, a father, a priesthood holder, somebody that that's holding leadership positions in the church, you know, there there are so many check boxes to check and so many things to do. You know, I know that when I got those messages, it was just almost disheartening, like, oh, I'm just never going to get this right. You know what I mean? You know, it, it can have negative effects for women, but it also has negative effects for, for men as well. Um, yeah, well, and that's that right. But you, when you pedestalize one gender, you're automatically debasing the other. Right. And so some people might say, well, and I know some people might say, well, don't compliment the men too much because we're already a patriarchy. They already get all the stuff, you know. But I I know a lot of men who feel as you do, of they kind of feel beaten down, like we never do anything right and we're all addicted to porn and you know right. <laughs> instead, you know, I think I think men men need some validation as well and um and sometimes I'm the one who reminds us that we need to have family prayer and sometimes my husband is the one that reminds us that we need to have family prayer and I like that. Right. I like that. I like knowing that sometimes he's the one that's a little bit more in tune and he's thinking about it and sometimes I'm the one who's a little bit more in tune and I'm the one who's thinking about it. And it and I don't necessarily need somebody to tell me, well, it's always the man's job. <laughs> right. <laughs> <clears throat> because it doesn't reflect the reality of our marriage. Um, and I'd like to at least retain, I, I told somebody today, I said, can I at least keep some gender equality in my marriage? Can I at least have that be a place where, where I have some gender equality? Right. If right. I can't find it anywhere else, can I at least have it in my marriage kind of thing? And, right. and anyway, so. Yeah, well, uh, I make it a point, uh, especially when we have very mainstream conservative um, 
Mormon friends and family over, I always make sure that Stephanie calls on somebody to say the prayer whenever we're eating or something <laughs> like that, just to just to shake them up a little. Yeah, bit. just to you know, I just uh, almost to compensate. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, and there's so many things that so many people are doing well. I mean, you know, it sounds. I, I feel like this has sounded a little bit like a bashing session, maybe contrary to what you're trying to do on a thoughtful faith, but I. You know, I sometimes I think because I do live in a very conservative place where I see very, very traditional gender roles reinforced and taught from the pulpit and this kind of thing. And so it it sometimes makes it difficult for me to remember that there are good things happening throughout the church and where people are trying. And one of my colleagues in my department, he is the elders quorum president in his ward and he invited the Relief Society president to come in and give the lesson in elders quorum. Very cool. And, and she, I, I'm not sure if she was going to do the same thing for him, invite him to come into Relief Society and give the lesson. And so you have those kinds of things. And another friend of mine who teaches the high priests, he um, had a lesson. He had the freedom. I don't know how it works out because I've been in primary so long, but um, which Sunday they're allowed to kind of the presidency is allowed to choose a lesson. And so he took the new book daughters in my kingdom, the little booklet that they released for the relief society, you know, the mm-hmm. history of yeah. relief society. And he actually had that as their lesson and their discussion. And he had all these old high priests do this little quiz where how many of the general relief society presidents can you name? <laughs> and then right. he went through a little history of the Relief Society and the various things. And honestly, none of them, they might, I think they could name like Emma Smith and maybe Eliza R. Snow, but they didn't know any of the General Relief Society presidents. Hmm. And his lesson was, you know, if if we believe in, in the respecting women and valuing women in the church, then we should really value women and that men should value women's women's. Um, participation in the church just as much as we value the men, you know, and, and so you have these, these kinds of things going on. And, and, um, I can, you know, even years ago when I lived in Nebraska for my doctorate, I, um, I was a stake young women's counselor and, um, there were some wards in our stake that when the young women got their personal progress award, their young womanhood recognition award, they held these full-on, almost like a court of honor type of ceremonies for them. They put on the full spread, and they had them bring all of their projects and display them, and they had the parents come up, just like you would do at an Eagle Court of Honor, and and um, right. know, the bishop was there, and the opening prayer, and all that, they, you know, to make it feel as though we value what you've done just as much as when a young man gets his Eagle Scout. So it's more than a pin and a handshake from the bishop. Right. It's more than bring them up to the pulpit in sacrament meeting and give them a pat on the head kind of thing. It's that we really do value this. And so, you know, we need to look to these examples. And I know that um, um, Nylon is passionate about um, bringing forth a lot of these types of positive examples as well, is that outside of, you know, taking priesthood ordination off the table and taking some of these more radical things off the table, maybe what we should be doing is one-on-one on a grassroots level individuals looking for creative ways that they can make women and especially young women, because I think that's one of the, that's the time period where a lot of this gender equality is really kind of exposed and, and to really 
try hard. Think of creative ways that we can be more inclusive, that we can value women's participation in the church in these ways. Um, step outside of our traditional viewpoint a little bit. Step outside of, of how things are done. Um, and I think that that we'll find that, you know, there's, there's just wonderful, wonderful things going on and, and wonderful things. So it's, it's good to remember those things. And maybe that's, maybe that's the context for trying to understand the pants movement and also the prayer and general conferences. These are people that are trying to do something positive or to encourage the church leadership to do something positive that shows that we put our money where our mouth is. Right. The, there are, legitimate problems and legitimate issues that we need to discuss. But at the same time, we have to recognize that. Um, and I think it's, I think the writings on the wall that things are changing in, mm-hmm. in Mormonism right now. And I think it's, you know, considering how slow things typically change within the church, I think things are moving at a breakneck breakneck speed right now. Um, right. And I think it's, uh, I think we're seeing a lot of positive change right now. And uh, I think your wave analogy is is perfect. You know, what it comes down to is <laughs> all of these people wouldn't be, you know, everyone feels invested in the church, no matter what their level of testimony is and their level of, of devotion, or maybe they go back seven or eight generations of, of pioneer stock or whatever. I don't think people would be trying so hard if they weren't so invested in the church, if right. we didn't love it so much. If we didn't love the gospel so much, we wouldn't. You know, people wouldn't be putting so much of their heart and souls into all of this and wanting the best for everyone, wanting it to be the best that it can be. Very true. And, and so, you know, if it was something where everybody just hated this organization and we couldn't stand it anymore, then maybe, <laughs> maybe putting people wouldn't try so hard. Right. That's very true, you know. Yeah. If uh, so, if I think um, you know, there it's it's easy to just uh, dismiss somebody as a heretic or an apostate, but mm-hmm. you know, the fact that we're having this conversation just shows how much we we love our church and love right. the the gospel and want to make it as as good as possible for as many people as possible. So and there's so you know, and there's so much good that we that it has to offer our children to offer us. You know, these things are, for me, they're wonderfully empowering. Um, They've brought blessings to me. So when I do struggle with something like where I perceive that our our gender traditions are outdated, that we're, you know, we're still struggling with some of these things, I, I worry that when we have these discussions that we shouldn't write people off as, oh, they're just unrighteous or they've lost the spirit or, you know... Most of us, we're trying very hard to have the Spirit in our lives. We're trying very hard to stay close to the Lord, but some things still might bring us a little bit of pain. And we should be to the point where we can talk about the things that cause us pain and maybe wanting to change some of those things that cause us pain without judgment, without saying, well, that's just because that somebody wants to break the word of wisdom or because they don't want to go to church anymore. No, we do want to go to church. We want to raise our children in the church but we want some of the things to be adjusted a little bit so that it's it's a more positive experience for everybody on some of these things and 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 some of that might take some some reflection and looking inward and also 
um, adjusting how we deal with people instead of writing them off or condemning them to hell, instead saying, well, tell me about it. Tell me why you feel this way. That in itself can go so far to building bridges is if you just ask somebody, right. why do you feel this way? Please tell me. I want to understand why you feel this way. And 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 I think that we're at that point. I think that we're going to be at that point where we can start to listen and adjust the things that are causing some people some pain. Right. You know, um, thank you for sharing that. Um, I think uh, one really important lesson that I've learned really recently from a friend of mine, um, you know, I recently had an, an exchange with uh, somebody in my ward that really just kind of offended me and made me feel uh, somewhat judged and condemned by that person. And, um, you know, my, my instinct was sort of to lash back at that person. But I, uh, I spoke to a friend of mine and, um, one thing he, he told me, he said, you know, you're getting mad because you're examining his words, but what were, what are the emotions behind that person's words that is, that are criticizing you and condemning you? What is he actually saying? And I realized that, well, he's not saying, Micah, you're bad, you're wrong. He's saying, Micah, I'm scared. Or Micah, I feel threatened. Or right. Micah, I feel hurt. And, you know, that, that re- coming to that realization has really had a profound effect on me. And I think that's a lesson that can be very applicable when it comes to the discussions that we're having right now about gender roles within the church. And so when somebody says to me or my wife, why don't you just leave the church on its face? That's a very offensive comment. But what you realize is, is what that person actually is saying is, I'm really scared. I'm really threatened. And when you look at it that way, it's hard to look at that person and, and, and feel, you know, I think, I think sort of the, the offensiveness and the condescension melts away and gives you an opportunity to feel compassion and empathy for that person. And that, and obviously that has to be a two way street, but I think that's an important lesson that we need to incorporate into the discourse and and the discussions that we have. Right, right. I think you're right. And, you know, when it comes down to it, we're all trying our best to be like the Savior and to treat others as he would. But much of that attempt on each individual's part is colored through, like you said, our fear, our cultural baggage, our social baggage, what's going on in our homes. And, you know, when it comes down to it, the gospel is the best tool for us to dig our way through this mess of life. And the atonement is the best tool and the best method that we have to dig through the messiness. And everybody has problems. I can't remember if it was Elder Eyring that said something like, when, when you, in your discourse, I'm paraphrasing, of course, in your discourse, when you're talking with any, anyone, remember that that person is feeling some kind of pain because pretty much everybody is. All of us are feeling some kind of pain. And so much of that pain comes out in our interactions with people. We express our fears. And, and so I, you know, as I, as I struggle and sometimes I, I get frustrated when I see these, these um, expressions of gender equality or statements over the pulpit that I hear all the time and this kind of thing, I have to always tell myself, do not attribute to malice 
what can be attributed to just ignorance or tradition. And sometimes people are willing to be educated. They are willing to kind of change their perspective if you approach them in a humble way. And, and that's, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm working on that in my own life of giving people the benefit of the doubt of not rushing to judgment of trying to be patient and, and it, and it's a process for all of us. But I think when you're dealing with something like gender roles in the church, the difficulty is, is that you don't have one solid statement in a general conference over the pulpit that says, okay, everybody, here's what we're going to start doing. I mean, you do when it's something like, we're now going to lower the missionary age to 19. Boom. That means everyone has to accept it, whether you liked it or not before, whether you liked the idea or not before, you now accept it because somebody, because a prophet of the Lord said it. And that's our that's our framework for making those changes. But on all these other little things that we've talked about, it varies so much from ward to ward and stake to stake and individual to individual. I mean, you could have a completely sexist bishop or you could move down the block and you have a bishop that's the most progressive guy in the whole wor- world. Right. And that the fact that it's so arbitrary means reminds us that we have a lay leadership that the Lord calls qualifies whom he calls that we need to give people the benefit of the doubt and and that each individual leader is working from his own perspective and what he's brought to the table already and so if he comes from that background well then that's what you're going to get and and so to change that is going to be little by little unless you get a statement from, from in general conference saying this is how we're going to do it anymore and that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I think your message is correct is that we need to be somewhat patient as we go through these changes and as we try to work through our growing pains. Right. You know, I think we've done a good job laying down the intellectual work, you know, and I think that's sort of what things like the – it's so funny to say the pants, the pants movement and and the other activism we're seeing, you know, that's sort of laying out the intellectual work, but there's still a lot of emotional work that we have to do and we have to connect with people and we have to show love. You know, that's it. Just like just like uh, Section 121 teaches us that, um, you know, no power or influence can be maintained by us saying this is the way it needs to be. We only, as I said, so we, yeah, we only have influence on each other, and according to to uh, what the Lord says, there we only have influence on the powers of heaven if we're doing it with love and with with kindness and long suffering and patience. And you know, I think that's uh, that's such a sublime, beautiful, and universally applicable truth that uh, that should guide the way we interact with each other. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And hopefully, you know, stories like this are going to help us to kind of, um, you know, portray that and um, improve these discussions and show that there are those of us that are thinking about these things that we are, but we're choosing to stay in the church. You know, I'm, I'm choosing to stay. I choose to keep my covenants. I, I choose to um, wear my garments. I I choose to raise my children in the church. I choose to fulfill callings, but I'm also working on some of these other things. Um, and I'm hopefully I'm doing it with love. Hopefully this has come across as something with love. I hope, <laughs> even if I sound frustrated sometimes. So, <laughs> right. Well, 
<laughs> I'll echo that sentiment for myself as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's good for all of us. So cool. Well, Andrea Radke Moss, thank you so much for for coming back on for our <laughs> for our sequel episode of A Thoughtful <laughs> Faith. Um, really appreciate you providing your insight and your expertise on this issue. Oh well, you're very welcome, Micah, and thank you very much for having me. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. See you.